Welcome to the second episode of Impact Medicom's podcast series on immunotherapy in head and neck squamous cell carcinomas. In this episode, hosted by Impact Medicom's Sarah Desette, we welcome Dr. Antoine Eskender, a head and neck surgical oncologist at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre and assistant professor in the Department of Otolaryngology at the University of Toronto and adjunct scientist at the Institute for Clinical Evaluative Sciences. This episode discusses the role of the surgical oncologist in managing patients with HNSCC and how immunotherapy fits into their practice. Hope you enjoy it. Hello, listeners, and welcome, Tony, to the podcast. Can you start us off by telling us a bit about your work as a surgical oncologist? Yeah, so I'm a surgical oncologist at the Odette Cancer Center at Sunnybrook Health Sciences and at Michael Guerin Hospital. So a health services researcher that kind of studies our healthcare system and how it can be improved as well. And focusing on head and neck squamous cell carcinoma, at which points along a patient's care pathway are you involved? So I'm involved at every step of the pathway, everywhere from diagnosis to initial staging documentation to initial treatment decision making. And then ultimately, even when patients recur, uh, helping them through palliation as well. What type of follow-up occurs following surgery for patients with head and neck squamous cell carcinoma? First of all, surgery is just one treatment modality for head and neck cancer, as you've heard on some of your other podcasts. Surgery is often the first-line treatment, particularly for oral cavity cancers and for some larynx cancers. Many head and neck cancers receive other treatments as well. Regardless of what treatment is received, whether it's surgery or radiation or chemotherapy with radiation, head and neck cancer patients are followed up every three to four months in the first two years, and then every six months after that until the five-year mark. And it should be followed by an oncologist, so somebody who's looking to detect if the cancer is coming back or not. The rationale for this follow-up is based on the fact that if a head and neck cancer is to recur... Most such recurrences happen within the first two years after the completion of treatment. And that's why we monitor people a little bit more closely in those first two years. So would you say that surgical oncologists generally have a good sense of what systemic therapy a patient with head and neck cancer will likely get before talking to their medical oncologist? I would say it depends. It depends on the surgeon's relationship with the medical oncologist. It depends with how tight-knit the group may be. I think all of these things depend on conversations and education between the team. And one of the best ways to coordinate that conversation is through something called a multidisciplinary tumor board. Head and neck cancers, particularly in the province of Ontario, are highly regionalized to head and neck cancer designated centers. And all such centers have a very robust tumor board where discussions are to be had about patients. One challenge, though, is getting the patients on the list for discussion and which patients are considered important for discussion and which ones are a bit more straightforward and maybe don't need discussion. Different tumor boards have different philosophies on that, but I think more discussion is almost always better than less. And so if you did have kind of an idea of what systemic therapy a patient was going to get, would that knowledge kind of impact how you practice? Oh, definitely. Just as a general rule, some chemotherapies are not particularly beneficial in patients over the age of 70. And the most common chemotherapy we use in head and neck cancers is something called cisplatin. Cisplatin is a medication that we've learned over the years can be given either weekly 
or given every three weeks during radiation therapy. And it has very specific criteria of who we should give it to. Let me give you an example of a situation in which knowing whether a patient was going to get the chemotherapy or not might change our decision-making. Patients with intermediate stage larynx cancers, ones that we would stage as T3, such patients typically benefit from radiation and chemotherapy, but many such patients are over the age of 70. We know that when a patient is over the age of 70 and they have a really bulky T3 larynx cancer, that their chance of cure drops significantly. So if they're over the age of 70 and we can't give them the chemotherapy at the same time as the radiation, then we know they're probably not going to do as well. And we might alter our treatment approach. And sometimes we even would recommend surgery as an upfront treatment. Although this is not, you know, the typical standard of care, but it is something on the menu of things we can offer them. So understanding which patients may qualify for chemotherapy versus not is helpful because it can sometimes even change the original treatment decision-making plan. And we don't always know the answer to that. And it's not just about age. You might have somebody who's in their 60s, but has really bad kidneys and who's diabetic, and then they may not qualify for chemo. And you can have somebody who's 72 or 73, kind of on that cusp, but who's very active and has no medical problems. And we might recommend chemotherapy for them. So it's not exactly clear to the surgeon or the radiation oncologist who qualifies and doesn't qualify upfront. We usually have to send them for an opinion from a medical oncologist to get that information. And are there different factors to consider for patients in a metastatic or recurrent setting? One such important factor is whether they've received chemotherapy in the past or not, because that may determine whether they qualify for other treatments. The other question is, where did the cancer recur? Not all recurrences are treated equal. When the cancer comes back in the mouth or the throat, that's a very sensitive area in terms of our timeline. It's very different than when a cancer metastasizes to the bones or the lungs, for instance. So those factors help us determine what the next treatments might be. And surgeons are a critical part of that decision-making because they help evaluate the patient for local symptoms. They can provide some palliative care type procedures to the local area to help get the patient through to the next step, which may include chemotherapy or immunotherapy. And they're also there to biopsy these lesions that will help us determine response to therapy and also what we're dealing with. So there are many, many factors in the recurrent metastatic setting uh, that need to be thought about, including care from a surgeon in that setting. And how does your role fit in with other specialties that are managing a patient with head and neck cancer who may be a candidate for immunotherapy? Well, I think surgeons are, in a way, the great gatekeepers to immunotherapy. We're often the first people the patients will call when they have a recurrence, when they have a new symptom, when they have bleeding, when they have a new lump. So we're the first person who sees this and might say, oh, I'm worried that they might have recurrence. So we, therefore, may also be the first people to put in the referral to medical oncology to get them streamlined. So that's one important thing. The other important thing is some immunotherapy treatments require a biopsy of the lesion to determine particular scores to determine whether they're going to benefit from the immunotherapy or not. And we're central in that respect as well. Even if a patient has only received radiation in the past, often when their tumors recur or don't respond to treatment, they're referred to a surgeon next to assess them and to assess whether this is surgically removable. And it's only really when you determine that a patient may not benefit from a large surgical excision that they would then qualify for immunotherapy, at least in the current healthcare context and environment. So 
I think having really engaged surgeons that are knowledgeable about immunotherapy, that understand its benefits and its risks, and who qualifies best, as well as how to get them to that urgently or quickly, is absolutely critical, particularly in the healthcare context. Or I'm putting a bit of my health services research hat on when I say this to kind of get more patients the benefit that they may get from immunotherapy. And talking more about the multidisciplinary team. Are there things medical oncologists and pathologists require from you, the surgical oncologist, to improve their workflow efficiency and vice versa? Yeah, for sure. I mean, for one, they want to know whether something is surgically removable or not. That's number one. And number two, I think our pathologists struggle in terms of knowing who to order the particular tests on, particularly the CPS score. So that requires communication from us. Again, it speaks to those relationships within the multidisciplinary team. I can tell you our team has a fantastic relationship, and it's a quick text message or phone call or email saying this patient needs this updated score, and it can usually be done within a very short period of time. But maybe letting them know in advance about the patients we're most worried about, the ones that are the highest risk of recurrence, and maybe automating testing of those scores that are only derived from pathology tests on those patients would be beneficial. So those are the two main things. It's discussion around the pathology and making it available. And number two is whether they can receive a surgical resection or not, because that will determine their eligibility for immunotherapy. Can you order the CPS PDL1 testing of your institution? Yeah, it's something we can easily order. And it is something we do order as surgeons all the time. It's simply a requisition on our pathology form Or if the pathology's already been reported, it's an addendum. So it's a request for additional information on that form. But it's it's not particularly challenging to access, I would say. And can you describe some of the relapsed or metastatic head and neck cases that you would bring to a tumor board? Yeah, that's a good question. I tend to present all of my metastatic or recurrent patients to tumor board just because they're a bit nuanced and we're in a bit of a pendulum swing right now where the treatment decision-making is changing with the context of two immunotherapy agents available to our patients. So I almost tend to present all of them. The ones that are the most important to present are the ones that are on the cusp of being resectable. Just because a surgeon can do a surgery to remove a cancer doesn't necessarily mean they should. What I mean by that is some cancers, while they are removable surgically, we know they tend to not do very well with surgery. It may be the best available treatment currently, but that's changing. And I think adding patients to clinical trials that will help us answer questions about immunotherapy in the context of surgically resectable disease is kind of the next frontier. So another good reason to present a patient at a tumor board is one that you think may be eligible for a clinical trial. My personal suggestion or advice to other clinicians and other tumor boards is to present all metastatic recurrent patients, because I think we can learn something from each patient. And those are the patients that are at greatest need with potentially the greatest impact on survival. And to end off our discussion, are there any anecdotal cases you can share that kind of highlight the importance of the multidisciplinary team when it comes to treating patients with immunotherapies? Yeah, I can give you actually a patient that we currently have on an immunotherapy clinical trial. It's a patient who had a very large oral cavity cancer. It was involving the entire tongue and the jaw. We have many such patients. They had a very radical surgical resection, which was the appropriate thing to do. It is the first line treatment for oral cavity cancer. And 
Following that, they ended up having concurrent chemo radiation with cisplatin being the most common drug that we use in that context. And the patient did well for about a year, a year and a half. And as can happen with these tumors, the tumor did come back at around the one and one and a half year mark. That's a high risk period. And they noticed a lump around their jaw and their tongue. I saw them in the clinic and this was clearly a large recurrence of the tumor. Again, you always think, is there more surgery I can offer? This would have been a nearly impossible surgery to do to remove this with very little reconstructive options. And so it would have been very debilitating from a quality of life perspective. We did a number of scans and we found the patient not to have any spread of the disease to the lungs or the bone or elsewhere in the body. And we started assessing what treatments we can offer them. And immunotherapy was probably the best available treatment. The problem is, and this again speaks to the benefit of the multidisciplinary team, the patient ended up having a lot of bleeding from their mouth, from the tumor. And they were scared that going on immunotherapy would make this worse. And so they were concerned and they said, no, no, maybe I don't want the immunotherapy. Maybe you should just leave me alone. So we worked as a team, surgery, medical oncology, radiation oncology, to come up with a plan. So we locally used some topical treatments to decrease bleeding. We also gave the patient one dose of radiation, just one sitting of radiation to stop the bleeding and shrink the tumor a little bit so that we could get the patient onto the next step, which was immunotherapy and their clinical trial. So this is an example of a patient that's had surgery, chemotherapy and radiation after surgery, had a period of surveillance and had an unfortunate recurrence, which can happen in some patients, and then needed still some local treatments with radiation and some topical solutions to get them to immunotherapy. And they're still alive to this day, several months on this treatment. And we're hoping that they will be one of the responders to immunotherapy. That's a great example. So that's all we have for today. And I thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on this podcast. Okay, take care.